0: From Wyoming Public Media.
1: This, 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 is, this is spoken. Spoken. Spoken words. Spoken words. This is spoken words. I'm Micah Schweitzer. Enrique Salmons, one of the authors who's a Native American and actually indigenous Mexican. And he says there's no word for wild in his language. That for them was just their homeland. And Europeans showed up and called it wild so it would be available for the taking.
0: This time we hear from John Hausdorfer. He is dean of the School of Environment and Sustainability at Western State Colorado University, where he's also a professor. He's authored and edited several books, including a collection co-edited with Gavin Van Horn titled Wildness, Relations of People and Place, which came out in 2017, and another forthcoming collection called What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be? Hausdorfer and his family split their time between an old farmhouse in Gunnison, Colorado, a yurt in Pitkin, Colorado, and a tiny house in Tesuke, New Mexico. But although he's now immersed in the West, his environmental concerns were born back East.
1: I grew up in New Jersey in the 70s and then the 80s, and it was when a lot of hospitals were caught dumping into the Atlantic Ocean. And I'll never forget uh, being out on on my boogie board with my cousin and seeing a syringe float by us, it just seemed fundamentally wrong. Because to me, the ocean, you know, it was like the second you step off the beach, you're in the wilderness. You know, you're not at the top of the food chain anymore. You're not in complete control because of undertows and tides and sharks and you know. And 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 to me, just it was such a violation of that that wildness. And then seeing the neighborhood, the the, the forests and farms around me in New Jersey turned into neighborhoods and malls throughout my teenage years, it really unsettled me. And I got this sense that we had to find another way. We had to find another story as a species. The story we've lived out over the last 10,000 years is that the universe is made for us. And I think that story has gotten us in a lot of trouble. You know, the story of rain will follow the plow, got us the Dust Bowl, the story of the frontier got us the Iraq War. The story of, you know, God made, made the world for us and we were made to rule us, you know, has gotten us climate refugees of Puerto Rico. You know, we need a new story. And to me, that new story is finding a way in which we could produce a society that results in more biodiversity. And I think we're capable of that. And that, to me, that awakens human wildness. Because it's going to take imagination and creativity and innovation and risk-taking That's our wildness. That's us at our best rather than just simply consuming in pursuit of a high standard of living.
0: In Wildness, Relations of People and Place, Hausdorfer and Van Horn bring together essays from a wide range of authors in order to explore the components of this new story, reaching for renewal and collaboration, trying to bridge old ideological divisions, and bringing more voices and possibilities to bear on the urgent question of how to create well-being and foster wildness in the places we live, work, and play. Here's John Hausdorfer reading from the essay he authored for the collection.
1: What kind of ancestor do you want to be? Michael Dahl's question hangs in the thick Minnesota air. I lean against the deck railing as the chill of evening tightens my skin. Two stories below round lake reddens, matching the maples that are flashing their last burst of fall color. What kind of ancestor do I want to be? I repeat Michael's query slowly, quietly, talking to myself, the question implies that we are always and already ancestors, even before our descendants are born, even if we never have children. In terms of space, nowhere is, ethically speaking, away. In an age of globalization, we grapple with how our actions impact unmet peoples and unseen environments on the other side of the earth. Now Michael asks me to think about ethics in terms of time. If I'm already an ancestor, then no era is away. Ethically, all times and all generations are now. So how are we to live? We're sitting on Winona LaDuke's deck. Winona, White Earth Anishinaabe, influential author, founder of Honor the Earth, and former presidential running mate of Ralph Nader, clinks around inside her reclaimed wood house while Michael and I talk. Winona is involved in the daily rite of making dinner for her entourage of kids, grandkids, neighbors' kids, interns who live with her family, activists, and spiritual leaders. Her kitchen is the hearth of both a home and a movement. From where I sit on Winona's deck with Michael Dahl, the aroma of Round Lake mingles with the wetland scent of wild rice simmering on the stove, rice that was harvested from this very lake. I tell Michael that ethical questions like his ancestor question are what I have dedicated my life and career to. For Michael, the ancestor question comes down to rice. For him, he is not Anishinaabe without wild rice from his lakes and his stomach during the wild, ricing moon of September. He tells me more about this. He says, if we don't rice, if we stop Manuminike, which means going ricing. He pauses, he takes in the night, the season shifting to the rising moon, his eyes focus on me again. If we go to the grocery store and buy a pound of rice that we might have gotten off the lake anyhow, if we stop ricing to feed our family, then the ceremony of Manuminike becomes abstract. Michael explains further, I am going ricing. There's so many different pictures we get in our mind when we say it in English, but instinctively when I hear the word manuminike, I picture a lake, I picture a canoe, I picture a pole, I picture knockers, I picture that hide that lays on the bottom of the canoe when you've riced about thirty to forty pounds of rice in the canoe, looks almost like a moose hide. I hear the sounds of rice, I hear the squeak on the side of the canoe, I hear the trickle of the rice hitting the canoe, I hear the popping of it. When it is parched, I hear the popping of the fire. I smell the fire. I taste the fire, all encompassed in one word, menu minike. Michael concludes, I want my four-year-old son to grow up and not take for granted that not everybody gets to greet their dad when they come off the lake. Not everybody gets to lay on the garage floor and open a piece of green rice off a tarp and eat it. Not everybody gets to parch rice and eat freshly popped rice. I realize that before I can answer the question of what kind of ancestor I want to be, I need to understand what my rice is. As a transient descendant of transient people long removed from the source of their food, heat, and ancestors, and as someone who does not love to grow food, and whose once broken back screams when splitting wood every fall, what is my rice? I do not have Michael's indigenous historical connection, nor should I pretend to. But to what extent can I begin to find my own rice without co-opting Michael's connection to place and past? In other words, what connects me to the health of the land while also connecting me to the love of my ancestors and to the hopes of my children's children?
0: This collection of essays reflects a commitment to the need for wildness across a diversity of landscapes, such as working landscapes like ranches and farms, and urban landscapes like Chicago, as well as inclusion of communities, perspectives, and cultures that have been marginalized or excluded from this work in the past. For Hausdorfer, these efforts hinge on a renewed understanding of what it means to be wild.
1: Wild simply means self-willed. In Old English, any being, any species, any system, any community that's self-willed and doesn't require constant management and taming is wild. So reintroducing wolves in Yellowstone made that landscape more wild by balancing deer and elk populations and protecting grasslands and soil stability. And that's a wild landscape because of that reintroduction. But we also find that kind of will in other places. Aldo Leopold had a better definition than even will for wild. He said wildness was the capacity for self renewal and so what kinds of communities can renew themselves really became the question of this book and so we want to find wildness everywhere we we have essays from the south side of chicago uh, looking at not only restoring, say, a prairie to a landscape in the Fuller Park neighborhood, but also that kind of renewal for people who, in the African American community, there have not felt safe connecting to wild land in a long time because their families left the South because of what happened to them in the woods. You know, and so renewal is not just about the renewal of healthy grasslands or soil stability or habitat for wildlife. Renewal is also about a local food system so people can continue to eat in their place rather than having a food desert. Renewal is also about people feeling safe and healthy in their home. And so this book's about finding and fighting for wildness everywhere.
0: And in seeing wildness as important everywhere, Hausdorfer and Van Horn are also promoting a new kind of practice. Hausdorfer calls it the co-creation of wilderness. He sees it as a new way forward between the extreme notions of wild as either the absence of a defiling human presence or the complete humanization of nature in which nothing is considered truly wild. The essays in this book examine practices that encourage humans to contribute to the well-being of that wildness in a variety of landscapes, not just the traditional wilderness version. Hausdorfer offers examples of what this co-creation of wildness might look like.
1: But as you go down a continuum of wildness beyond wilderness areas, you also look at wildness on working landscapes and co-creation on working landscapes. And so in San Luis, Colorado, another kind of Rocky Mountain, small community, Devon Peña is one of our authors, and he talks about a several hundred year old acequia farming practice where the snowmelt from Culebra Peak in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains at 14,000 feet, how that snowmelt works through a ditch network to flood people's land and provide food, but also extend the riparian ecosystem through and across those ditches. And the people manage that water democratically. It's known as a water democracy where everyone has equal access to water rather than first in use, first in right. And there's a kind of co-creation there because just as the renewal of that food system and that Hispanos way of life relies on there being snow at the top of Culebra Peak, at the same time, that biodiverse riparian ecosystem and, and the forests around the mountain need that community to continue that ditch system of food and to fight for those forests. We also find co-creation in terms of Rocky Mountain ranching, not just agricultural food systems, but ranching with you know Courtney White from the Kivira Coalition talking about how They've started to sort of bunch uh, livestock and move them around to mimic the migratory patterns of wildlife so that grasslands are actually being enhanced um, rather than depleted by grazing and so suddenly you have carbon sinks and carbon sequestration addressing climate change and habitat being enhanced from us consuming beef you know and so really the the future of wildness is not just more acres of wilderness the future of wildness is figuring out a scenario in which humans co-create biodiversity through producing their livelihood
0: Hausdorfer and Van Horn also strive to address the barriers between people and wilderness or public lands that are in place because of historic trauma or racism or exclusion. They view this as vital to creating a public able to work together to care for this planet.
1: And one of the things the Wildness book is trying to do is expand and diversify the population of Americans who care about public lands. We have an author, a woman, in the book named Mistingette Smith. She runs an organization called The Black Land Project. And she does many interviews with all walks of life of African-American people. And so obviously she gets very diverse perspectives on land. But one common thread that she sees is that, you know, when she interviews someone about a forest, often a story of, you know, an ancestor being chased by dogs, you know, will come up or an ancestor being hanged will come up when they when they talk about the trees. And so... We need to reckon with this. Enrique Salmon's is one of the authors who's a Native American and actually indigenous Mexican. And he says there's no word for wild in his language that for them was just their homeland. And Europeans showed up and called it wild so it would be available for the taking, you know. And so we're going to become a majority minority nation by 2040. This is very exciting culturally. And, and, and how are we going to have a citizenry? That's ready to fight for, for public lands and designated wilderness. If a large population of Americans come from a cultural background in which wilderness has been part of a colonial or imperialistic or violent story for their culture, and so this book is really trying to value the wildness from where where we all live, different places, you know, urban, suburban, rural. Mountainous, So that we can sort of come together rather than be divided by the wilderness idea. And so for me, the future of public lands requires not just like bringing underserved populations from the city out to the wilderness, it requires rethinking the wilderness idea itself from listening to people from different cultural backgrounds.
0: John Hausdorfer and Gavin Van Horn also produced nine short videos for the book, featuring conversations with some of the contributors to the book Wildness. That web address is humansandnature.org wildness. This episode was produced by Theo Basquiat. I'm Micah Schweitzer. Spoken Words is a collaboration between the University of Wyoming's MFA in Creative Writing Program and Wyoming Public Media.